The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Commander. Uh, come in, Chief. I was just reading one of the books our host has written. Alexis is quite a prolific author. Yeah. A bunch of these were left in my room, too. I haven't had a chance to look at them. What does she write about? She seems to have something to say on just about everything. Yeah? Economic analysis, political commentaries, literary critiques. She says she spent her life examining the human condition. What's her prognosis? Not very good. She says we have become fat and lazy and dull. My wife told me something along those lines just last week. <laughs> the common conceit that the human species has evolved over the last several centuries is ludicrous. But gains we have made have come at the cost of our own core identities. Man has lost touch with his true power. London. It is Thursday, August 7th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to the show today where the theme is going to be happiness, choice, freedom, and capitalism and why they go hand in hand. We'll be talking about the secret of happiness because, you know, it's no secret. Why happiness eludes so many people. Uh, some of the myths and realities that we hear about the pursuit of happiness, at least according to John Stossel. And, of course, you have to guess there's some people who aren't too happy about Capitalism and freedom and happiness. We'll hear about them first. 519-661-3600 is a number to call if you want to join in the conversation today. You can always email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. Or, of course, catch all our archive shows at justrightmedia.org. And, in fact, uh, one, one of our listeners did, in fact, email us this week. And this was an interesting one I'd like to share with you. And it reads as following. Hello, Mr. Metz. Just a quick note here from Italy. Thank you for putting your excellent show online. I downloaded most shows to my iPod and now enjoy listening to it in my car while I drive through town every day. Just right indeed. And thank you for sharing your valuable work in this way. Many greetings and keep up the voice of reason from Ralph Wilms in Torino, Italy. Well, isn't that something? I think we live in a strange world today where you can be doing a show in London, Ontario, and someone's listening to it driving around in their car in Torino, Italy. Well, hello to Ralph from us all here in London, Ontario. Now, happiness versus freedom. Have you ever heard of a theme like that? You know what? One might gather, by the way, by the intense news coverage lately and by, of course, my own emphasis on this show, that green might be the only color threatening freedom. Of course, that's not the case. Uh, just the latest color and shading of a much darker and larger movement. Freedom is under attack on every philosophical front, and among the most recent attempts to undermine freedom, there's been a concerted effort to separate freedom from one of its demonstrably unseparable qualities and benefits, and namely that's the pursuit of happiness and of happiness itself. 
Now, of course, happiness is a subjective definition in many ways, and we'll be talking about that, too, a little later on. But this past June, here in Canada, some 9,000 academics, 9,000, gathered in Vancouver for the annual Congress of the Humanities and Social Sciences. Now, I remember in the humanities and social sciences, those, those subjects in school I always did really poorly on 50%, 55% maths and, and, and physics and things I did really well in. But boy, when it came to the humanities, forget it. I think I understand now why today. But uh, at these uh, conferences, they discuss everything from terrorism to gender roles to economics to the sociological significance of first names, even things like that. And, of course, some more important issues. One of the subjects discussed actually made its way right to the front page of the National Post. There I saw the headline when I picked, looked at the paper, quote, Made miserable by too much choice, end quote. That was the headline on the front page by Jenny Wagler of the National Post, and that was on June 2nd. And the subheading read, Even as Western nations get healthier and wealthier, Happiness levels are stagnating, end quote. And the article goes on to say the following. Freedom, one of the historic tenets of liberal democracies, may be undermining happiness, according to new research that combines the latest findings of positive psychologists with political analyses. Hmm, isn't that interesting? In liberal democracies with the highest levels of personal and political freedom, Levels of happiness have stalled in recent decades, or even begun to decline, according to a paper to be presented this week at the largest annual gathering of academics in Canada. And of course, this already happened in June. William Gorton makes the claim in a paper entitled, Too Much of a Good Thing, Freedom, Individualism, Autonomy, and the Decline of Happiness in Liberal Democracies. Even more troubling... The causes of this stagnation or decline may be attributable, directly or indirectly, to the core values of liberalism, namely freedom of choice, autonomy, and individualism, he said. Ever since the French and American revolutions, liberal democracies have clung to the idea that the most freedom leads to the most happiness. There's the assumption that human beings make the best choices for how to lead a happy life, said Professor Gordon, who teaches at Alma College in Michigan. And yet this abundance of choice may be backfiring. One clue, Professor Gordon said, is that while Western countries continue to get healthier and wealthier, happiness levels are stagnating. Now, I found that comment interesting in light of the fact, if you recall a couple of weeks ago, this is exactly what Pope Benedict was saying on his, uh, on his recent green tour, shall we call it, in North America and Australia. But he continues, he says, uh, we haven't seen increases in happiness that you would expect to see. There's been a big spike in depression in all the Western liberal democracies over the last 50 years, and this is while gross domestic product per capita has been increasing, end quote. Now, I, you know, I just read something like that, and, and, and I just have to intersperse a bit of reality here. You know, the reality is, for the past 50 years, there's been a big spike in the growth of government and of government spending, and, you know, a lot of people don't realize, not until Pierre Trudeau in the, in the 60s and 70s did Canada ever carry a sustained deficit or debt. Uh, you know, you want to see that hockey stick graph that Al Gore brags so much about when he's talking about CO2? Just plot the Canadian government budgets from Confederation to Pierre Trudeau. Forget the hockey stick. Never mind the hockey stick. This is Led Zeppelin's stairway to heaven, for goodness sakes. You, as soon as you get to the Trudeau years, the debt just rises almost vertically. 
you know, you can climb that debt to the top of that stick and you'll be seeing the face of God. No kidding. Most people don't realize that until uh, Trudeau, Canada had very few deficits and, and never sustained one. So, so um, this is a just amazing thing. It's over the same time and the n- number of years that this fellow is uh, quoting or, or referring to, rather. But he continues, uh, and various psychologists and other scholars believe that too much freedom may be causing the spike in depression. There you go. Spike, I don't even know how they measure things like this, but that's a whole other story. An abundance of choice may actually make people unhappy, said Professor Gordon, who examines the fallout of this proliferation of freedom to choose in politics and personal lives and even in consumer decision-making. There's a sort of frayed social community, which is a result of, in some sense, the individualism that liberal democracy celebrates, he said. There's been this gradual sort of erosion of the human connection. and sound a lot like, uh, you know, Cory Morningstar and some of the people in the Green Movement. Uh, quote, freedom also carries pressure with it and inflated expect- expectations. On one hand, he said, there's a promise that the world's open to you. You've got lots of choices. You can go to college. You can move across the country. You can marry who you want to marry. But choice, he said, comes weighted with responsibility and the potential for regret. Now, that's an interesting comment because if you recall, uh, freedom means responsibility. That's why most men dread it, wrote one famous socialist, (laughs) George Bernard Shaw. And, uh, of course, that's the part of the coin that people feel uncomfortable about, the responsibility of their decisions, not the freedom of making it. But, uh, quote, beyond personal freedom, political freedom does not seem to be generating any real happiness either, he said. Now, remember that term, because it's going to come up later in the show, generating happiness. Uh, That's uh, an interesting term. The claim of democracy is that the public policy will closely mirror collective public preferences. But the reality is that most people don't even feel that their participation in politics makes them happy, he said. They find it more of a chore. Few, he said, have a sense of control. Moreover, watching political debates may even decrease a person's sense of happiness. Holy cow, is that ever true? Um, Never watch political debates. (laughs) You want to get depressed quick? Watch one of them. Uh, The article then goes on to demonstrate how all choices have their downsides. Consumer choice, you know, makes customers anxious and sometimes overwhelms them completely. And then it goes on to say, quote, In the United States, for example, as many as a third of employees will turn down retirement plans turned off, Professor Gorton said, by all the investment choices. It's kind of paradoxical that having lots of choices can actually make people reach decisions that are not in their objective interests, he said. While Professor Gorton's current research primarily focuses on identifying the link between freedom and unhappiness, as opposed to solving the problem, he does suggest one possible approach to the dilemma, something he calls soft paternalism. Now, of course, we call that something else here on this show, don't we? Soft paternalism says individuals still have choices, but we're going to try to tip the balance in subtle ways towards towards the decision that's more likely to make the person better off, he said. Now, I found that interesting. You know, better off? I thought we were talking about happiness. Now, what are we talking about here? Again, as always, materialism, financial security. So you you know, you got to get that retirement plan. That's happiness for you. Quote, with retirement plans in the United States, for example, a new employee could be automatically signed up for the plan and thus furthering their own interests uh, unless they actively refuse, he said. Now, I'm glad he at least gave them that much, but you know what that used to be called? It used to be called negative billing. And remember the fuss that the cable companies got into with that? 
Uh, you know, and he admits that, quote, tampering with freedom will remain tricky, and he by no means advocates chucking free freedom entirely. Well, you know, every person who wants to chuck freedom entirely will tell you he's not interested in chucking it entirely. He'll just do it a piece at a time. That's how they always do it. You never chuck freedom entirely, and guess what? You never earn it back entirely either. So it's a moot point. The question is, how to retain those core values of freedom and autonomy without aggravating human unhappiness any more than you have to, end quote. Now, of course, there was a predictable re response to this, also in the National Post. Lauren Gunter, lots of choice, little freedom, he writes in National Post, uh, June 9th. Every aspect of our lives, regardless of how minute, is subject to government oversight. And he writes, no doubt there will be those on the right and left who agree with Professor Gordon and who will pr pounce on his conclusions to advance their own anti-freedom agendas. Social conservatives, for instance, have argued for years that too much personal choice leads to social deterioration. Family values break down when the traditional family model, mom, dad, kids, is devalued by governments sanctioning alternative choices. Individuals, or sorry, individualism undermines the sense of community and so on. Meanwhile, those on the left have long seen affluence as the enemy. Permit people to have too much money, too much consumer choice, and it undermines a sense of equality needed to advance civil society. Better to tax away great gobs of personal wealth and use the proceeds for the common good. Both groups, and Professor Gorton too, make a misconception, though. They equate choice with freedom. The two are not one and the same, end quote. Now, to support his case, Gunter cites a host of government restrictions and laws, of which I will only cite a few, filled, about, filled up about two-thirds of a page there. But here are some of the ones that caught my attention. Quote, we may be free to buy big-screen HD TVs until we're blue in the face and be presented with an awe-inspiring array of models. But we are no longer to free to speak our minds without fear that crusading government agents will seek to punish and silence us through human rights tribunals. We're no longer free to use our property as we see fit without environmentalists or municipal planners interceding. Well, that was the subject of our show a couple weeks ago. We may not buy added health care for our families. We are prevented from selling our crops to anyone but the government grain merchant. A agents of the state listen in on our telephone calls and scan our emails. Our deposits at the bank are reported to authorities. Our right to defend ourselves is circumscribed by regulation. We may not drink or smoke in public, or, in the case of smoking, increasingly even in private. Public health officials remove swings and slides from playgrounds. Schools enforce zero-tolerance policies that cannot distinguish between violence and natural childish roughhousing. And on and on and on, he writes. Freedom isn't failing us. We are unhappy because we are no longer free, he, in, he concludes. You know, ban, 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 ban. That's been the catchword of everything political these days, hasn't it? And yet, in a world that demands freedom, all our politicians of every major party, all they offer us is their version and their preference of a ban, you know. And I think this is the product of the fascist mind, which we've been talking about a lot in this show. A mind that is in, incapable, I'm going to say this here now, of experiencing happiness. And we're going to be addressing this phenomenon in explicit detail during the latter half of today's show and why that is so. But as much as I support and agree with everything I've just read by, by Lauren Gunter, I have one minor criticism, M minor in the sense of the point Gunter's making, you know, about his use of, and this is about his use of the word choice. 
Uh, now, to be fair, you know, he's using the word choice because that's the word that was being used by Professor Gorton, so uh, this might not be a direct criticism. Maybe I'm making more of a, a generic point here rather than offering a criticism of an essay I actually agree with. But I entirely agree that choice and freedom are not one and the same, and I agree that we're systematically, as exampled by Gunter, being denied freedom in a certain way. But in every step along the way to destroying freedom is the destruction of a choice, okay? Uh, you know, we do not have, quote, lots of choice, little freedom, as the headline suggests. What we have is little freedom and fewer choices, which with each and every day of passing legislation, I mean, that's what statist governments do. They take your money and they take your choices. That's what they do. That's all they can do. They have no power to do anything else. So if I were to uh, fine-tune Gunter's essay, I think I would have used the word options instead of choice, because yes, we do have lots of options, but little freedom and fewer choices. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by this distinction. Uh, <laughs> for example, when it comes to cable TV service providers here in the city, here in London, Ontario, I have a choice, quote-unquote, I could call uh, Rogers Cable, or I could call uh, Rogers Cable, or I could call... Uh, Rogers Cable. I could call Rogers Cable. And then after choosing <laughs> amongst these options, when I buy my basic cable service from the provider of my quote choice, quote end quote, I have another quote end quote choice of which channels I'd like to receive. Option A and or option B. Both prescribed in a prepackaged way so as to direct my cable dollars to all those choices, quote end quote, and channels, which is another choice, quote end quote, the vast majority of which I do not want, and I do not watch. Now, does that make me happy? <laughs> not very. So I guess you could argue here the choices do make people unhappy when the government is forcing them upon them, and they don't want to exercise that choice. You're going to hear about this in a very fundamental way a little bit later on. So am I happy? Oh, yes, ever so. Uh, now, now, having said everything I just said, I'm going to say one more thing that might sound a little contradictory. But think about this for a minute. In a given circumstance, you might be in a situation where you have no choice and still have freedom. Uh, for example, you might want the choice, quote-unquote, of buying the house that Bill lives in, but Bill doesn't want to sell. So with respect to buying Bill's house, you have no choice in the matter. But does that mean you're not free? Of course not. That's why it's important to distinguish the existence of choices on, on, on two different grounds. The choice is created by those people offering them or not offering them in a free market through consent, or a third party, usually government, though it could be a criminal, interfering with an otherwise available choice that would have been exercised by two consensual parties. Now, when that happens, that's the only time you can really argue about a choice being denied is when there's that third party interfering. Uh, you know, A wants to do a deal with B and the third party dis uh, interferes. That's when the choice has been denied. You can't say you've got a choice when it doesn't even exist. When someone, you want, you want the choice of going to the moon? Well, I'm sorry, they haven't built that spaceship yet. They're working on it. You can go into space now, I understand, but you can't go to the moon yet. But are you free to do so? Absolutely. So, you know, we already live in the soft paternalism, that liberal fascism that has been suggested as a solution to happiness by Professor Gorton. Actually, I think we're on the precipice of, of hardcore paternalism, never mind the soft stuff. Both are fascist, both deny choice, both deny freedom. Now, when we come back, we'll take a look at some of the realities and what they're actually saying, the researchers, about 
uh, freedom and happiness. And uh, we'll come back right after this break. Love, uh, love uh, staying up late. Love watching the horrible late night TV. And you know what I keep seeing on TV late at night? It, you know what I keep seeing on TV late at night? Oh, thanks for asking. <laughs> Thanks for asking. I keep seeing more and more of the 1-900 number commercials. Guys, you see these? That, oh, some phone jackers up front. Okay. Yeah, I love them because what they are, they're these nymphomercials with the scantily clad women encouraging men to call up and talk dirty to them. But now you never see commercials with men encouraging women to call up and talk dirty to them. I think I know why this is. Oh, thanks for asking. <laughs> I'd have waited all damn night for one of you to say something. It's because you ladies know that you can call up any guy at random, talk dirty to him for free. on the phone for hours. Collect. Then start 69 you. Wink. if you watch the infomercials often enough, you will eventually pick up the phone and order something, all right? I finally sent away for the Anthony Robbins case, you know, the feel-good guy. Of course, they get it mixed up. I get Marty Robbins, the country singer. <laughs> now I can't stop crying. <laughs> I sent away for the ab sculptor. That, they're not lying. That does fit under the bed. I often wonder how many people have ordered things like, uh, you know, exercise equipment and stuff that basically stays under that bed after they've ordered it or used it once or twice. I've seen a number of situations like that. But ain't consumer choice wonderful? Welcome back to the show. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Bob Metz, and you can call into the show at 519-661-3600 if you'd like to add some comments or ask a question. Talking about happiness and its and its relationship to freedom, capitalism, choice, and it's the whole theme today. I think you'll see how the picture comes together by the end of the, the show. But uh, one of my favorite uh, people who's in the news business is uh, none other than John Stossel, who most of you probably know from ABC News in 2020. He, of course, has written some books, one of them being uh, the 2006 book Myths, Lies, and Downright Stupidity. And chapter 12 in that book, interestingly enough, is about the pursuit of happiness. And in that uh, chapter, what they did was they listed a bunch of myths about happiness, and they sort of wanted to measure those myths against the realities of happiness. But uh, quoting uh, Princeton University history professor Robert Darton, Stossel writes, quote, When Thomas Jefferson said we have a right to pursue happiness, that was a radical idea. Aristotle talked about happiness years before, but by the time the Declaration of Independence was written, most people were in a position to pursue it. People will not feel simply that happiness is a desirable state of being, but that it is a right. 
and that if they're deprived of that right, they should raise hell. They should kick out the politicians. They should kick out the husband or wife. They should move to California. They should change their lives. But will that make them happy, asks Stossel. And with that, he, uh, he examined some of the key myths associated with happiness. Are they true or are they false? Here, I'll just list them very quickly. I think there's about eight really quick. Uh, of course, money buys happiness, number one. Uh, two, some people are just born happy. Three, if I could just turn all these decisions over to someone else, life would be better. Four, religious people are happier. Five, leave me alone and I'll be happy. Six, disability brings years of unhappiness. Seven, happiness decreases with age. Eight, you can't fake happiness. And nine, more leisure time would make us happy. So I thought they were interesting. See how many I can get through them in the next uh, five or six minutes. If I don't get through them all, we'll try and get to the rest of them by the end of the show. Might have a little time to get them in there. But of course, uh, here are some of the main ones. Uh, myth, money buys happiness. Reality, not for long. Quoting $5 million lottery winner Curtis Sharp, uh, Stossel writes, uh, money ha or people have a misconception about having money. You go out and you go, oh, that's what I want, I'll buy it. Well, a couple of weeks later, it's like, you know, that emptiness comes back. And then what? Uh, one reason more money doesn't make us happier is because people adapt, writes Stossel. I was skeptical of the whole concept of happiness research. How do these scientists know? What makes for a happy life? You can't measure happiness in the way we measure blood pressure. So what the researchers do, and there really are people at universities who work full-time trying to analyze happiness, is uh, simply as people, you know, they'll ask, how, how did you feel this? Or simply ask people, how did you feel this year? You know, rate yourself from one to nine. Are you unhappy? Are you neutral? Are you very happy? And since the circumstances of the moment might change your answer, some researchers actually have subjects spend a month wearing beepers. And when the beeper goes off, they have to write, how they, write down how they feel right then and there. And uh, that's how they do some of the research. Another myth, some people are just born happy. Reality? Apparently so. Referring to studies of various identical twins who were raised in entirely different environments, a University of Minnesota study found that if only the environment shaped our personality, identical twins reared apart would have no similarities, says Dr. Bouchard, and yet they're every bit as similar as identical twins reared together. Studies at the University of Maryland found that some children are literally born happy or unhappy. Scientists there used electrodes to monitor babies' brain activity when they smiled, and babies who smiled a lot had more measurable activity in the left frontal lobe. Now, you know, I don't think the word happy as being discussed in a philosophical context can even apply to babies. Uh, happiness as a simple feeling is not the kind of happiness we're talking about in the big picture, though its roots certainly do begin in infancy, and as we'll see again momentarily. And Stossel writes, uh, optimists tend to be happier than the rest of us. And uh, here's an interesting reference, since he's a presidential candidate now. He writes about Senator John McCain. He says he's an optimist. And in an interview with Stossel, he told him it was you know, part of his natural optimism that kept him going during the horrific five years he spent as a prisoner of war in North Vietnam. His captors tortured him. They put him in solitary confinement for more than two years. Don't know if I could survive that, honestly. But all that time, he said, he was buoyed by his positive outlook. And Stossel asked him, you mean there were times you would say you were happy? 
And McCain responds many times. There were times when I would laugh at the Vietnamese, the guards, and the interrogators. And I could tell you the reason why so many of us were able to come out of that experience with a good mental condition. And that was because we were happy a lot. Which is an interesting comment to make. So it doesn't have to do with your, obviously, strictly your physical and your, your financial well-being. <laughs> Stossel concludes, he says, that's a good attitude to have, but I wouldn't have been happy in a North Vietnamese prison. I think I'd be right there with him. Though maybe we'd surprise ourselves. Maybe a lot of us think that and don't realize how well we might adapt if we were faced, actually faced with it. Another myth. If I could just turn off all these decisions over to someone else, life would be better. Truth is, control makes us happier. The connection between... Now, this is really interesting. The connection between control and happiness begins in the cradle. At Rutgers University, researchers tied a string around a baby's wrist. When the string was pulled, a picture appeared. Eventually, the babies figured that out. And just like that, pulling the string, you know, would make the pictures appear and it would make them smile and they'd be happy when the pictures appeared at their command. But then the researchers took the baby's control away. They didn't take the pictures away. The pictures didn't appear or they appeared randomly. And guess what happened? The children soon withdrew, or they cried. And when they gave them the control back, the babies were smiling again. If we think of ourselves as victims, says psychologist David Myers, if we think that our life is out of control, we live with less joy. This may be why people in authoritarian countries rate lower on the happiness scale. Now, isn't that an interesting contrast to the comment we just got out of the Vancouver session here in Canada? Quote, Studies conducted in Hungary in the communist 1980s, which is, by the way, where my parents were from, show that the people there rated themselves as less happy than folks in any industrialized country. And poverty wasn't the sole reason for their misery. Countries like India, Bangladesh, and Turkey were just as poor but reported far high levels of well-being. The data from around the world is consistent. As Dr. Myers says, people who live in nations where people are empowered... In West Germany, as opposed to East Germany during the 1980s, for example, report greater satisfaction and just visibly look happier than people living under conditions where they feel they have very little control over their lives. So, you know, that's a real telling exper experiment there with the babies and the whole issue of control, because I'll come back into this a little bit later on again. Myth, religious people are happier. Truth, religious people are happier. <laughs> Many religious people say happiness comes from the sense of purpose that serving God gives them, a sense of commitment to something bigger than themselves. Now we talked about re religion and the, the whole happiness relationship and what religion is. It almost doesn't matter what you believe in though. It's a matter of having that sense of purpose. Myth, leave me alone and I'll be happy. And I think Simon and Garfunkel wrote a song about that, didn't they? I am a rock, I am an island. Uh, truth, of course, close relationships make people happier. Uh, married people rate themselves as happier than singles, but it's not just marriage that makes the difference. Say, psychologists, all kinds of relationships help. And friendships are, of course, among at the top of the list. Some quick ones here. Myth, disability brings years of unhappiness. Truth, the disabled are just as happy as anyone else. Although they might not be in the first few months or years when they become disabled if they weren't born with it. Myth, uh, happiness decreases with age. Truth, the old are as happy as the young. Or I guess you could e inverse it and say they could be just as unhappy as the young if you aren't. Myth, you can't fake happiness. Truth, fake it until you make it. 
Now, Stossel was quite skeptical about this claim. He said faking it would, would make him unhappy, and I tend to agree with him. I've read, some, I've read this debate on, uh, you know, even Dr. Laura Schlesinger used to say for people who are kind of falling out of love, just fake it, you know. And Well, if you're really working at it, that might work, but if you're, it's not really there and you, the love's gone or something, I don't know that that would be a good thing, and I've read some pretty powerful arguments the other way. And, of course, uh, myth more leisure time would make us happier, and the truth is busier people are happier. Some people say they'd be happy if they just had more time to relax. No way, say the experts. Inactivity is a curse. Happiness comes when we test our skills through some meaningful activity. Happiness comes from not from pursuing happiness, say the researchers, while pursuing other things. Happiness happens. You know, that applies to economics as well. You can't just go out running out pursuing money or wealth in the absence of meaningful activity. Imagine Bill Gates sitting in his garage many years ago. Hmm, I'm going to make a lot of money and become one of the richest people in the world. I don't think that's the thought pattern that was going through his mind at the time. He had an intense interest in computers and technology. I'm going to take a break now, listen to a little bit of Dr. Walter Williams speaking on the subject of capitalism, and we'll find out why that's important when we return on the other side of these very important messages. Now, in the economic sphere, the founders thought that relatively free markets or what some people call capitalism, was the most effective social organization for the promotion of individual freedom. And indeed, capitalism is defined as a system wherein individuals are free to pursue their own interests so long as they do not violate the private property rights of others. In a system of capitalism or free markets, there is voluntary exchange. There are private property rights held in goods and services. And much of the original intent of the United States Constitution was to bring about a climate in which this kind of social organization could occur. Now the great benefit of capitalism that's often trivialized or ignored is that through private ownership and control over property, it minimizes the capacity of one person to coerce another person. Moreover, when there's capitalism, the coercive powers of the state are minimized. They are, re they are restricted to the legitimate functions of the state. And what are the legitimate functions of the state? Well, one legitimate function of the state is to protect you and I from international thugs violating our private property rights. So that says, <coughs> excuse me, that says that one legitimate function of the state, at the federal level at least, is to provide for national defense. Another legitimate function of the state is to protect you and I from domestic thugs violating our private property rights. So that says, at some level, another legitimate function of the state is to provide police services. Other legitimate functions of government are those of enforcing constitutional order, adjudicating disputes that may arise among citizens, and the provision of 
certain public goods, public goods as an economist would define them. Now, in order to pay for these legitimate functions of the state, each citizen should pay his share. Uh, made it all the way to my 30s and I'm still single. It's kind of hard to get married when your relationships don't last through the weekend. <laughs> Usually by Sunday afternoon they sober up and escape. <laughs> now, relationships are tough, aren't they ladies? Yeah. Support from four, thank you. <laughs> Guys are always trying to tell you what's wrong with you. I hear this, Jan, you're insensitive. You know, Jan, you're abusive. Jan, you're mean. I'm like, what the hell does he know? Stupid therapist? Stupid therapist. Uh, next thing I want to talk about is a very smart therapist, someone you might not have heard of. Welcome back to the show, 519-661-3600, numbered, the number to call here at Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Got a little over 20 minutes left. Many of you may never heard of Wilhelm Re Willem Reich. Now, Willem Reich was primarily a psychologist and a therapist, but he was also a scientist, a researcher, and almost all-round general investigator of the sciences and phenomenon of human behavior. In a sense, almost a Galileo of his time, which was in the most significant term of time during the first half of the 20th century. Just some of the books he published included The Cancer Biopathy, Character Analysis, Ether, God and the Devil, Cosmic Superimposition, The Function of the Orgasm, you know, Masters and Johnson, move over, The Invasion of Compulsory Sex Morality, The Mass Psychology of Fascism, which by the way is the only big of his big books I ever read from cover to cover, The Murder of Christ, and Reich Speaks of Freud. So you can get the general idea of the scope of this man's interests and research. And there's another book that Willem Reich wrote that apparently when written was more in a personal diary form and was never intended to be published. You know, having suffered the usual persecution that so many pioneers in their field have to suffer at the hands of society in which they live, he wrote basically what today might be called a rant. You know, he just let it all hang out. And the title of that book, which eventually found its way to be published, is Listen, Little Man. And the book's preface suggests that this appeal to the little man was a silent response to gossip and slander. When it was written, no one could foresee that a government agency charged with the safeguard of public health, in league with politicians and psychoanalytical careerists, would unleash an attack on Rice research, which he called Orgone research. The decision to publish this appeal as a historical document was made in 1947. Now, Reich argued that his orgone research, which I think was dealing with cancer and about which I know next to nothing, was never proven unsound on any scientific basis, but that it was killed by governments and other interests through defamation, he said. And remember, he, he lived in Germany, too, during the, the time of Hitler. But that's not what his book is about, nor is it where I'm going with all of this. Listen, Little Man speaks to the very nature of freedom and happiness that we've been talking about so far. Now, as I understand it, Reich, like Sigmund Freud, of whom he wrote and even personally knew, 
saw many patients on the so-called psychiatric couch in his office, particularly during the years of the rise of Hitler in Germany. Hitler later drove him out of the country, and he kept hearing the same thing over and over again, which is what partially led him to publish The Mass Psychology of Fascism. And he didn't like what he was hearing. Uh, you know, and so in his contempt, he referred to these people as the little man. You know, I could almost see him writing this book and sticking his finger in some guy's chest and going, listen, little man. And that's basically what, how he wrote this thing. So there's a, there's a tone of anger and a tone of cynicism about it, although it, it, it reveals so much about the psychology of people, the fascist psychology, in, in fact, which was growing tremendously during the Hitler years. And he says this. And remember, this is a directed to the little man. Quote, you let the powerful demand power for the little man, but you yourself are silent. You provide powerful men with more power or choose weak, malignant men to represent you. And you discover too late that you are always the dupe. You differ from a great man in only one respect. The great man was once also a very little man, but he developed one important quality. He recognized the smallness and narrowness of his thoughts and actions. Under the pressure of some task which meant a great deal to him, he learned to see how his smallness and his pettiness endangered his happiness. In other words, a great man knows when and in what way he is a little man. A little man does not know when he is little and is afraid to know. He hides, it, he hides his pettiness and narrowness behind illusions of strength and greatness, someone else's strength and greatness. He's proud of his great generals, but not of himself. He admires an idea he has not had, not one he has had. And the less he understands something, the more firmly he believes in it. And the better he understands an idea, the less he believes in it. For 25 years, writes Reich, I've been speaking and writing in defense of your right to happiness in this world, condemning your inability to take what is your due, to secure what you won in the bloody ballot battles on the barricades of Paris and Vienna, in the American Civil War, in the Russian Revolution. Your Paris ended with Petain and Laval, your Vienna with Hitler, your Russia with Stalin, and your America may very well end in the rule of the Ku Klux Klan. Now recall that this was written at a time when America was in fact very fascist, as we talked about on past shows uh, when discussing Johann Goldberg's, Goldberg's book, uh, Liberal Fascism. Uh, quote, you've, you've been more successful in winning your freedom than in securing it for yourself and for others. This I knew long ago. What I did not understand was why time and time again, after fighting your way out of a swamp, you sank into an even worse one. Then groping and cautiously, looking about me, I gradually found out what has enslaved you. Your slave driver is you yourself. Now my reason says, tell the truth at any cost. The little man in me says, it would be stupid to put yourself at the mercy of the little man. The little man doesn't want to hear the truth about himself. He doesn't want the responsibility that has fallen to him. That is his, whether he likes it or not. He wants to get rich or become a party leader or, or the head of the VFW or secretary of a society for moral uplift. But he does not want to assume responsibility for his work, for food supply, for construction, mining, transportation, education, scientific research, administration, or what have you. That's what the little man in me says, because he's afraid of you, little man, writes Reich. I'm afraid of you, little man, very much afraid. I haven't always been so. I myself was a little man among millions of little men. Then I became a scientist and a psychiatrist. I learned to see how very sick you are and how dangerous is your sickness. 
You have overcome the ty you'd have overcome the tyrants long ago if you'd been inwardly alive and sound. In the past, your oppressors sprang from the upper classes of society, but today they spring from your own ranks. Of course, he's referring to Hitler and the Nazis here. Ah, uh, they are even littler men than you, little man. They must be very little indeed to know your wretchedness from their own experience on the basis of this knowledge to be able to oppress you more efficiently and more cruelly than ever. You have no eye, no feeling for the true, truly great man. His character, his suffering, his yearning, his fury, his struggle on your behalf are foreign to you. You are aware that men and women, you are unaware, sorry, that men and women exist who are inherently incapable of oppressing and exploiting you. Men and women who want you to be free, really and truly free. You dislike such men and women because they are alien to your nature. They are simple and forthright. They value the truth as much as you value trickery. You're afraid of great men, their closeness to life and love of life, but the great man loves you as he would love any other animal, as a living creature. He doesn't want you to suffer as you've suffered for thousands of years. And you drive truly great men to despise you, to hide their heads in sorrow at you and your smallness, to avoid you, and worst of all, to pity you. You never ask yourself whether your thinking is right or wrong. You ask yourself what your neighbor will say about it. Now, that's called social metaphysics, which we've talked a lot about on this show. Or whether, if you do right, it will cost you money. And after driving the great man into solitude, you forgot what you did to him. But a great man doesn't forget. He doesn't plot revenge either, but he tries to understand why you behave so miserably. He tries to understand what makes you take what is given, give what is demanded of you, but never give freely and lovingly. What makes you kick those who are down on the way down, lie instead of telling the truth, and persecute not lies, but the truth. Sounds like a Human Rights Commission, eh? Little man, you're always on the side of the persecutors. You don't believe that your friend could do anything great. You despise yourself in secret even, no, especially when you stand on your dignity, and since you despise yourself, you're unable to respect your friend. You can't bring yourself to believe that anyone you have sat at table with or shared a house with is capable of great achievement. That is why all great men have been solitary. It is hard to think in your company, little man. One can only think about you or for your benefit, not with you. Now, that's something I never saw expressed before, and that's so true for so many people who just feel exactly like this. You plead for happiness in life, but security means more to you, even if it costs you your backbone or wrecks your whole life. And, you know, I've seen a lot of people personally do exactly that. You know, they're miserable and unhappy, but, boy, uh, that security is very important. Now, at this point, Reich dissects the whole envy-hate motivation behind the tormenting of the Jews, criticizes the little man's sexual compulsions and anxieties, and they're down with capitalism politics. But those subjects are less related to our theme today than what Reich had to say to the little man on the relationship between freedom and happiness. And uh, here's where we will find how one person's understanding of this relationship, way back in 1945 or before, uh, can completely outweigh that of 9,000 academics in Vancouver in 2008. We're still talking about soft paternalism by the state. My goodness. Take a quick break here, and we'll come back, and we'll tell you what the secret to happiness is, according to Willem Reich. We're here tonight because comedy gets rid of our desire to kill. <laughs> We're all screwed up. I read in the Los Angeles Times, 63% of all families are now considered dysfunctional. My God. That means we're the majority. 
We're normal. It's the people that had the mom, dad, brother, sister, little white picket fence. Those people are the freaks! <laughs> Something you should know about my dad. My dad is German. He's also an engineer. Not a lot of comedy growing up in that home, folks. Uh, we, uh, we had a lot of strict rules growing up. One of the strictest rules we had was we had to wake up with a smile. Yeah, that was one of our rules growing up. Every morning, we would come downstairs. My father would be waiting for us in the living room with his morning coat on, cup of coffee in his hand, classical music playing in the background. <laughs> Derek, look at me. <laughs> Why aren't you smiling, Derek? Hmm? Are you not happy to see your father? Hmm? Kind of reminds you of liberal fascism, doesn't it? The smiley face, the fatherland smile that is so common in, in the whole... Uh, entomology of this. Now, here, here's one of the most revealing psychological truths I've ever seen expressed about this subject anywhere. And again, I quote Willem Reich speaking to the little man in the book, Listen, Little Man. And here's what he said about happiness. He said, quote, you consume your happiness. You've never enjoyed happiness in full freedom. That is why you consume it, why you take no responsibility for the preservation of your happiness. You haven't learned because you never had a chance to cultivate your happiness with loving care as a gardener cultivates his flowers and a farmer his wheat. Great scientists and poets and philosophers have kept away from you, little man, because in your company it is easy to consume happiness but hard to cultivate it. And they were eager to cultivate theirs. Now I am reminded here of Professor Gorton's content, contention earlier, remember, quote, beyond personal freedom, political freedom does not seem to be generating any real happiness either when he said that. Well, whether he's aware of it or not, Gorton is telling us that happiness is a consumer product generated by some outside source, which can be therefore consumed by the recipient. And when people look at happiness that way, no wonder it eludes them. But here is what Wright has to say. He says to the little man, you never offer to help your helper, and I'll tell you why. Because at the beginning of his labor, the discoverer has nothing to offer but ideas. No profits, no pay increase, no union wage scale, no Christmas bonus, and none of the comforts of life. But you don't content yourself with not helping. You harass him, and you spit at him, and you make fun of him. Now, now do you understand why happiness runs away from you? Happiness wants to be worked for and earned, but you merely want to consume happiness. It runs away because it doesn't want to be consumed by you. In the meantime, the discoverer has managed to convince a good many people that his discovery has practical value. You don't believe it until you see it in the paper, because you don't trust your own eyes and your own intelligence. That's the way you are, little man. You can spoon it into the last drop, you can help yourself and gobble it up, but you cannot create. You never get a new idea because you've always taken freely and given nothing, because you've always helped yourself to what someone else has given you ready-made. You put security before the truth. You fritter away your freedom. You think the end justifies the means, however vile. And I tell you, the end is the means by which you achieve it. Today's step is tomorrow's life. 
Great ends cannot be attained by base means. You've proved that in all your social upheavals. And of course, this is why you heard from Dr. Walter Williams earlier on capitalism and freedom, because capitalism and freedom are both the ends and the means. They're the only system that match both. Every other system has a means trying to reach some imaginary end that they never get to. I talked about that last week, too. How then, I hear you ask, says Reich, shall I attain my end, whether it be Christian love, socialism, or American democracy? And here's where we find an interesting insight into his uh, political views, expressed in a somewhat different language than we would say it today. He says, your Christian love and your socialism and your American democracy are what you do each day. Your manner of thinking each hour, of embracing your life companion and loving your child, there are your attitude of social responsibility toward your work and your determination not to become like the crushers of life you so hate. Now, you know, Reich was considered by many people to be a socialist, but he never really envisaged his concept of socialism as something executed by the state and generally spoke positively of capitalism, even though he wasn't a particular advocate of it. To Reich, the combination of any social system with the state was called fascism, and that's what he called it. And it was here that Reich made an interesting distinction, one perfectly, by the way, in harmony with the definitions offered by uh, Johann Goldberg in his book Liberal Fascism, where he called both the right and left fascists, specifically the red fascists and the black fascists. And now in his time, the red fascists would have been Stalin, Lenin, and their gang of communist bandits, whereas the black fascists would have been Hitler and, and his Nazi bandits. So uh, it was a totally different uh, view. Every, a lot of people saw socialism as a voluntary system, not realizing that it's, it's involuntary. But uh, he says, but you, little man, abuse the freedom conferred on you by demo democratic institutions. You do your best to destroy these institutions instead of giving them the firm root in your daily life. You set out to banish capitalist exploitation the exploitation from the world to put an end to capitalist disregard for human life and gain recognition of your rights. But at that time, there was also respect for great achievements. There were loyalty and gratitude towards the bestower of great benefits. When I look around me today, little man, I see you at work. Your thinking is short-sighted because you have no memory for things that happened 10 or 20 years ago. You're still mouthing the same nonsense as 2,000 years ago. And worse, you cling with might and main to such absurdities as race, class, nation, and the obligation to observe a religion and repress your love. I never participated in party meetings or political conferences because all they do is shout down with the main point and hooray for incidentals. Boy, in my line of work, I literally live this sentence on a daily basis. This is Dalton McGinty and, uh, you know, John Tory and Print, you know. McGinty will say, let's ban plastic bags out of the liquor stores. And Tory will go, no, do it today on Tuesday, not on Friday, like you said, because that's not leadership if you don't do it right away. And that's the kind of, uh, you know, hooray for incidentals you get in Ontario politics. But basically, Reich goes on to criticize the little man for basically just wanting to be saved and not understanding that hope comes from, from your own understanding. You, you know, you can't pump hope into yourself and never out of yourself. And so he says, uh, you know, when will the little man have a good, secure life? And he answers him. He says, you'll have a good, secure life when being alive means more to you than security, love more than money, freedom more than public or partisan opinion, when your thinking is in harmony with your feelings, and when you let yourself be guided by the thoughts of great sages and no longer by the crimes of great warriors, when truths inspire you and empty formulas repel you. 
I could give you good advice, he says, but in view of the way you think and are, you wouldn't be able to convert it into action. So with that, uh, you know, basically he says, you know, in his way, almost like saying, you know, screw you. But then again, he's telling, they're asking, he says, you ask, little man, am I I utterly worthless? You don't give me a credit, you know, one ounce of credit for decency. But look here, I work hard, I support my wife and children, etc., etc., right? And he responds, he says, I know the little man is a decent, industrious, cooperative animal, comparable to a bee or ant. All I've done is to lay bare the little man in you, who has been wrecking your life for thousands of years. You are great, little man, when you're not mean and small. Your greatness is the only hope we have left. So there you have it. In the end, we still have to count on the little man. I have to stress, I've only touched upon one dimension of Reich's book, Listen, Little Man, which is the source of a lot of the quotes you've been hearing. And, of course, uh, he also wrote The Mass Psychology of Fascism, an entirely different experience from what you've just heard. Very textbook, scholarly, scientific kind of book, but very uh, fascinating. And we'll be talking about that again in the future. I'll certainly be uh, referring to that in the future, not only in his book, as it might apply to the continuous attacks on freedom and capitalism, even through the Green Movement, because uh, he knew a bit about that, too. That's it for, for, for today's show. We're going to wrap it up, so we hope that you will again join us next week on our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, and think right. Take care. We'll see you next week. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. My psychiatrist thinks I'm a kleptomaniac. Well, he didn't say it to my face or anything. I read it in his notebook when I got home. Psychiatrist thinks I'm a kleptomaniac. Well, he didn't say to my face or anything. I read it in his notebook when I got home.